Hi, today we're front porching with Tiff Goodman. In a couple sentences, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. All right, let's see. I'm from Maryland, PG County. I always gotta rep my hood. <laughs> um, and then I came to Richmond to go to University of Richmond back in 2003. Graduated from U of R 2007, and the only other place I've lived since then is here. So, been in Churchill for 10 years. Um, it's bittersweet. <laughs> um, and I think just from my experience here, it really did kind of shift where I thought I would be in life to really caring and being involved in both the community, um, teenagers and youth, and mental health. And so, um, those are that's pretty much what I do a little bit. My husband says I'm a jack of all trades, so I dabble in a lot of different things. Um, but overall, pretty chill. I'm a homebody. <laughs> Tell me a little more about your work with youth. What is it specifically that you do and, and why do you do that? Yeah, so um, I've learned after getting into the field of counseling that a lot of counselors have multiple jobs. <laughs> so I'll break down my full-time and my part-time yeah. <laughs> gigs. Um, so full-time, I'm a counselor. Um, my agency is called Challenge Discovery Projects, and we're actually moving into the Family Resource Center at the end of this year. So we're doing a little bit of expanding, and it's really exciting for us. Um, because we primarily serve the Churchill and Greater Richmond communities. Um, so there I'm a counselor. Um, during the daytime, I'm assigned to a school and my school is Fairfield Court Elementary. Shout out to all the Fairfield Court teachers because they're awesome. <laughs> and we do a program in the schools called Say It With Heart, which is an anti-bullying and pro-social um, and social emotional skill building program. Um, so I'm there for about a couple hours each day in the schools, and then I come back to the office and do um, just standard outpatient therapy, um, which is either focused on substance use with teens, trauma with teens and families, um, a little bit of anger management, conflict resolution, and basic mental health. Um, and we also, uh, we're fortunate that our program gets to be in the detention as well, so I'll do a couple of uh, groups um, in the Richmond Juvenile Detention right down the hill. And um, so that's my full-time job, good people over there. And part-time I do trainings for SCAN, focused on trauma awareness and trauma education. This is really a big thing called the ACES study that everybody's talking about, so we can chat about that a little bit. But um, I just did a training with RPS staff yesterday. And um, that's my full-time and part-time, outpatient in the schools, in the jail, and uh, training. And I imagine Ace will come up in, uh, as the answer to this question, um, but why is it that counseling and training are needing, especially in a community like Churchill, where you're largely centered? I mean, it's been historically documented that um, minority communities are underserved in mental health, um, and they're actually twice as likely to not return to mental health services, and a lot of that has to do with the connection with the counselor. Um, but a lot of that has to do with just cultural stigmas pertaining to mental health. Um, I do an ACES group at Armstrong and one of the kids said to me, they were like, you know, black families don't believe in depression. And so I was like, well, do you believe in depression? <laughs> like, let's talk about that. And it was crazy because a young white kid was like, well, my grandfather said there's no such thing as ADHD. So it, it sparked a really good conversation um, based on that. But um, we just, for, for, for years, for decades, for, you know, mental health is a fairly new field in general. I mean, PTSD was the 1950s, 1960s, when we were first starting to discover it. And childhood PTSD was just placed in the DSM a year ago. So understanding um, how our life experiences impact and shape who we are, in addition to just the chemical and biological things that make us people, 
um, play a role in how we perceive life, we, we just haven't valued it as we should. And even trained professionals are still misdiagnosed things because we're still learning in the process. And so it's so complex, but I think it's so needed. Um, and you know, honestly, my work uh, when I was with East End Fellowship and just uh, being in that community and learning and knowing about the kids and the families, it just led me to how could I better serve? Um, opposed to just being a you know fun TIFF and well, we could call TIFF and things like that and having youth group, which was all great and it was all meaningful and impactful. I really thought that if I wanted to take my, my, my potential in myself, but also my ability to serve those around me to the next level, I needed to go back to school and pursue this a bit more and more seriously. Tell me a little more about the ACE score and specifically why somebody who uh, <laughs> you just give me the breakdown on ACEs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about and why the it matters. Score okay. And why it matters. Okay. So um, there's a study done by Kaiser Permanente and CDC, the Center for Disease Control. Um, and the crazy part is that the study was primarily focused on middle class white males um, about trauma um, because there were some health outcomes that they were starting to see patterns with, such as obesity, um, risk of STDs, as well as uh, larger things like COPD or depression, um, attempts at suicide, um, so, um, likelihood uh, to abuse substances and things like that. And um, what they did is they asked 10 questions and I'm gonna botch the 10 questions, but it was primarily focused on physical abuse, abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, emotional abuse, incarceration of a parent, separation or death of a parent, um, separation in custody or caregiver, caregivers, um, mental health or substance use of a parent things like that and they would ask you 10 questions and however many questions you answer yes to would determine essentially what your ACE score is. And so the study said I believe about two out of three um, people that did this survey had an ACE score of at least one. And if you had an ACE score of at least one, there was a 48% chance, between 48 and 50% chance that you would have more than one. And once you get to that magic number of four, then all of your out health outcome risks just multiply through the roof um, on what you're more likely to experience and go through and some of those things are like really obvious um, and even you know at this Armstrong group I asked like why do you think a higher score would lead to maybe a higher rate of um, STDs and one of the students were like well maybe if you've been abused you don't know what it feels like to be loved and you want to be loved and so you're more willing to make high-risk choices to get that love and that can include that and I was like you know those are great correlations you know, and, and what seems like a common sense pathway, but there's also the impact that it has on your brain and how it teaches your brain to respond to life and how it teaches your um, hormonal stress responses and things like that to interact with each other. And it's so complex. I didn't go to school to study brains at all. So I couldn't break it down like the amygdala does this, but that's all a part of it um, because our brain is fluid it is plastic and it's constantly developing. And if we experience something that kind of halts or stagnates that development, um, that can come back to really catch us up down the road. Um, and that uh, one of the main things, especially executive function or decision making, which is on your outer cortex, and you can really damage that ability because, or not necessarily you're damaging it, but the things that you go through can damage your ability to appropriately process things. Um, and so when we think about um, all, all of what's going on here in the community, um, the National Child Traumatic Stress Network um, counts community violence as one of the 13 forms of trauma. And that alone, when you look at just that statistic alone, living here in Church Hill where I can see Mosby and I know where Creighton and Wickham and Fairfield are in relation to where we are right now, 
um, is very shocking and sometimes we're not setting up systems for success not only for children and families but also for teachers doctors and other systems here in the community so I mean, that's a bit of ACEs and why it matters, um, especially here in a place like Churchill. Um, and we have a lot of work to do, but I do know that there are a lot of partners in the city right now that are working. And a lot of, a lot of, I have a lot of colleagues, a lot of peers, um, a lot of friends, um, even, you know, a lot of the work that you do that is touching on some of those factors on addressing trauma in communities. So for someone that lives outside of the community, ACES can help them to understand that it's not as simple as telling a youth, stop doing that or start doing that. <laughs> right, that it's right, right. Developmental things that are out of their control. Correct. So where does somebody go from there? If they've gotten to that place of deeper understanding, what's next? Yeah. So, well, okay. So you, you made a really interesting converse, uh, comment about somebody outside of the community because like I said, the study was done on middle-class white males who had private insurance, and so that would make you believe that they also have employment. And so when you think about that alone, you have to realize that it's not just Churchill um, in so many ways, it's the larger community. Um, but coming back to your, your, your question about, you know, how ACES impacts decision-making, it is an uh, easy example, I and mean, you know, I do a lot of substance abuse work. Um, let's talk about weed real fast, and like, weed is an easy coping strategy. It's instant gratification. It um, alleviates a lot of aggression and anger. Um, I'm not gonna sit here and act like it's not illegal, but I am gonna say that weed helps a lot of people to cope. And if you have, through trauma, or through stress reaction, lost your ability to appropriately cope with crises or lost your ability to appropriately cope with your everyday frustration. And a lot of this is frustration tolerance, you know, that we that we don't see. But that's something that you have to learn and grow into and imagine, you know, being a child growing up without the ability and the safety and the space to develop that skill, as well as these constant impacts and stressors coming at your brain to teach you adrenaline, 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 and everything is important nothing can be solved through you know civil discourse and you know polite politeness and things like that um you know a common conflict mixed with adrenaline and how your body has been trained to respond can lead to what is perceived as a life or death situation and i have to fight my way out of it so we demonize fighting but we don't demonize um the, the external impacts as much that leads a body to believe, not even a person, but a body to believe that fighting is the best response out of this. And so, and so it's, it's really tough because, you know, you want to hold people accountable for the choices and decisions that they make. Um, but at the same time, what's leading to them even making those choices or decisions and like, how do we empower them to move beyond the experiences and how do we even stop the experiences like how do we just decrease aces in general in communities um but but provide a more holistic and more redemptive um, way to grow someone through what they've been through and that's a hard balance because like i said we always want to hold people accountable but sometimes we're not willing to look at the context and you know everybody has a story the baddest kids you'll meet will probably have the most complex story the sweetest kids you'll meet will still have a very you know intricate and personal story but it's just really hard to make that divide and it's hard to not look at the behavior but look at the history and look at the environment and the experience of a person so it's not like you're saying there's, um, in this, there are macro ways to approach it. Mm -hmm. Like how do we reduce a lot of the trauma? And there's micro, how do we 
in this person I'm interacting with, how I come to understand their story. Yeah. Like, are there are there ways that you've learned that are helpful in understanding somebody's story or helping them to feel comfortable mm -hmm. telling their story? Um, okay, so one of the more basic approaches to like a trauma-informed response is um, building relationship or building rapport, um, establishing regulation, and then building skills of resiliency, right? And one of the things is relationship is so critical. Um, we know that through the church setting, we know that the community work, we, I know that as a counselor, like relationship is critical. I'm not gonna tell you my life story if I don't know you or if I feel like you're gonna use it against me. So the ability to build relationship, the ability to provide empathy and the ability to just be non-judgmental for the moment. Um, and that's not to say that people shouldn't come back and have consequences or check their behaviors, but to be able to be with them in that moment and be non-judgmental about what's happening a lot of the times, I don't want to put a number on it, but a lot of the times when they really trust that you're genuine, their walls will start to come down and they'll share with you. And so what looks like, you know, you have a horrible attitude and you're unwilling to engage in school could really turn into something else of like, you know, all of this stuff is going on in my home. I'm eight years old and I really don't know how to say my mom has a mental health disorder, you know, but this is how I've learned how to cope through watching her. And then you see the tears flow. Now I will say nine times out of 10, you'll start to see the tears flow. When somebody f really feels like they could trust you with the baggage that they're carrying, like you didn't see the tears and they turned so human at that point. And so like a second ago, I wanted to shake you because you wouldn't let me continue with my class that I'm teaching. But like now that I'm in this moment with you, you trust me, there is relationship. I'm providing empathy, I'm being non-judgmental, and you're letting your walls down. I'm seeing that like, I don't want to call anyone a victim, but there's so much more at play to this little interaction that we saw than what's really happening in your little world. Because we sometimes discredit the validity of the worlds of children um, because we're an adult and we have we're adults and we have bills. So like your crush doesn't matter. That's not important. When, when we think back on our first crush, like <laughs> the crazy things we've done. We, we as adults sometimes forget that children have that still and they want to be seen as humans too. Um, and so, I don't know, relationship is first and foremost. Um, regulation will always be a part of it. When you're worked up, you're not going to be able to think level-headedly. Um, and then building skills of how do we address this in the future, that resilience component is like that third factor of working through like what's happening and how do we fix it for the future. I don't know how there's that many bottles <laughs> out there. <laughs> they bringing them from the recycling bin. I mean, <laughs> I feel like they're on their third recycling bin. You know. So you made a comment earlier, demographically, the, the black community, I think you said something to the effect, um, has more of a distrust towards counseling. Mm -hmm. Not just the black, I would say most minority communities would go ahead. If many minority communities have a distrust towards counseling, um, what is, what would you say is the demographic in your field of people working in that field? And if it is predominantly white, what thoughts or advice do you have around that? Yeah, um, I would say in the field of counseling is predominantly female first. Um, when you come across a male counselor, it's far and few and they get snatched up really quick. Um, I think that we all have put counseling in the box as like, this is a feelings thing and feelings things are for women. And so men avoid it, um, but there, if you look at the juvenile justice system, there's more boys than girls involved in it. Um, and I couldn't give you straight up statistics off the top of my head, but I know we never have enough male counselors in all the agencies that I've worked for and all of the companies that I've you know, partnered with. Um, 
So I will say first and foremost, it's female. Um, and I will say second, that it does seem like it's more white, uh, like a, more towards a white demographic. I mean, I think that you have to look at the what the demographics are in the US first and foremost. I mean, blacks are what, 14%? So even if blacks were 14% of counseling, I would say I've seen more than that, or it seems, you know. Um, but it's also a field where you have to, um, one, have a master's degree, um, two, have a internship, which is typically unpaid, and three, do a residency, which is typically low paid. And a lot of um, my peers, uh, and when I say my peers, I'm saying like young black college gra graduates, um, not trying to sign up for that. It's a long journey to become a counselor and it's very low paying and it's very trying until you get licensed even. Um, there's so so many parameters and restrictions. And so um, one of the cool things that I will say is that I, I've struggled quite a bit with um, white culture, especially white Christian culture um, and a lot of their values. But I really do and I'm not saying that there aren't bad apples, but I really do um, affirm a lot of the white counselors and social workers that I work with, not only because you're forced to be, you know, culturally competent as a part of being an ethical counselor, but um, I think counseling is the business of getting to know people's stories. And as you get to know people's stories, you start to see people and cultures differently. And so um, some of my colleagues, um, they, they really fit really seamlessly in minority communities and they're very intentional and humble, I guess, um, about their role in that and just calling out the elephant in the room of like, I'm a white person, I don't know what it's like to be black or I don't know what it's like to be a black teen at Church Hill, but maybe you can educate me. And that's definitely one of the starting places opposed to me saying I'm a white person and this is what's right and this is what you need to do to get your life together. Um, and so, like I said, I, you know, I think it's, I, you know, my assumption would be that it's a predominantly white, predominantly female field, but I've worked with some amazing predominantly white, predominantly female colleagues and supervisors. Um, I would say out of, I've had four supervisors and I think all four of them were white females, um, but they, um, they were just so mutual and collaborating with me and understanding my perspective on things. And I really did trust them and that's a lot of what it went down to. And, and you know, in some circumstances I could um, challenge them or say, you know, how do you feel like somebody's race or blackness or um, perceived notions of what it means to be a black female or a strong black female or an aggressive black female, like it's angry black female archetype. How do you, do you feel like you might be, you know, pushing into that? Do you think that you're adding on to that stereotype? And no one really likes to be challenged in that way, but like a part of being a counselor is being able and willing to roll with resistance. And like, I can't tell you how many clients have checked me. I had a kid that came in and was like, your shirt is ugly. And I wanted to be like, well, your head is ugly, <laughs> but you can't say that, you know, cause that's just gonna kill rapport, it's gonna kill the moment. And now you have an adversarial relationship. And so I'll say, you know, I could say, what about my shirt do you think is ugly? Or um, it's just a shirt, you know, something like that, opposed to being at conflict with him. And so that's the same, you know, when I have these professional conversations with a lot of the white women that I work with. So there are black women, black men. Um, I do have some amazing black female peers that are counselors here, right, in this community as well. Um, but it is <laughs> really hard. And, um, Everybody's trying to do better. We all need to do better. We need to continue to try, but 
it's a growing field and so we'll see how it goes and I'm always going to encourage young people of color um, not even young people of color young people of all minority groups whether it's the LGBTQ community whether it's the immigrant community whether it's Spanish speaking communities whether it's any of that I'm going to encourage them to go into the field because they have a role in helping their communities and serving their communities and educating me as well you know one thing you said um, that was interesting is when you were describing um, how some of your white colleagues engage um, you know, humility, uh, kind of naming the fact, hey, and I'm, I'm white and I don't know um, your culture, teach me your culture, being willing to listen and hear stories and being present. Like, all these are things you don't have to have a master's exactly. to do. <laughs> so like, what advice would you have to somebody who is, um, maybe they're a volunteer at a local organization, they are coming in. What are some like kind of, hey, these three things or what are some of the things that they should be thinking of or doing in their everyday interactions with youth in the community? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think those three that you just listed are, are very critical, but I think um, one, and this is a conversation that I've had since I've you know been in college at U of R and then living here in the community of like, as a black person, I've really had to grapple with who I am um, and what that means in America. Um, as, a, as a child, you know, like, well, why is my hair like this? Or why do we eat these foods? And you know, why can she do that and I can't and stuff like that. Or even talk about even police stuff, you know, how to interact with police and who gets away with what and when and where. But um, we really have to take a step back and check our own culture. Um, some white Americans don't believe that they have a culture, uh, <laughs> which is crazy to me because like I spent the majority of my life studying white culture so that I could fit in and get in when I need to. Um, with white culture, um, but really have to take a step back and ask what does that mean and what values and traditions come with that. Um, and like, whether, whether that's white culture, whether it's Christian culture, whether that's, you know, whatever culture you're from, you really have to do a thorough assessment of who you are and what you believe. And then you have to ask yourself, what bias are you bringing to the table um, for understanding? And how could I be putting my own values and bias on somebody else where it's not even beneficial? And we're not going to say that it's not beneficial until it explodes. <laughs> but like along the way, we really have to be checking that so it doesn't get to the point of explosion. Um, I do think mutual peers, peer relationships with other people who are different from you. Um, you know, one of the things about coming to Churchill and working in the community is that, you know, typically as a white adult coming here, um, you're working with children. And I'm not gonna say that children would do anything for candy, but we know children do a lot of things for the right outcome. And that is even excuse your racism. <laughs> you know, I will excuse your racism if, if you treat me out to dinner. And I don't want to make it sound like that, but like, I would excuse some things for a free meal too, <laughs> you know, not racism per se, if I even knew how to call it or identify yeah. it. Cause like, that's one of the other cool things that I really applaud some of the kids that I've grown up here and who um, are now young adults. And I wasn't grappling with this stuff when I was their age. I really wasn't. Um, it wasn't until maybe college. I've had experiences that I could look back on and now put words to, but sometimes you can't put words to what's happening and they don't know what it is that something doesn't feel right. Um, so I, I really applaud a lot of the young adults here. And yeah, I think you know the ones that I'm talking about <laughs> that just grew up here in Churchill and involved in chat, involved in Eastern, involved in the community. So I applaud that. But um, a kid can't call an adult out on certain things. And kids have needs that they want to get met for good and for bad. And um, so you can't rely on a kid to affirm you and your racial identity and your racial standing in a community like this. You need an, you need an adult peer that can that doesn't gain or lose anything in telling you the truth about stuff. Um, 
And those have been some of my most challenging relationships and they've been some of my most beneficial relationships as well. Uh, Cause they can start to challenge me or even the things that I place on the black community from my upbringing. Um, so I, I, I think that that's a really huge part, having a mentor, being open to that conversation, um, having the ability to not tokenize because you're immersing yourself fully. Um, if you're just coming to Churchill to serve and then you're going back to your all white worlds and environments, that's just not gonna do it. Um, because you have that comfort level. And I have a comfort level to go back to. Let me be very, very honest about it. But um, you have that life that you're going back to. And that's not to say that you can't have an impact, but you really do have to consider what your impact is going to be. And if that, Im if that impact includes uh, close interactions with children especially, then you need to have some type of accountability to the work that you're doing. When you think of your dreams for this community, particularly through the work that you're doing. Okay. Uh, and not just your dreams, but also what you think is um, like attainable with the resources you have. What is, when you think of five years from now and you think of Fairfield or you think of Churchill, what are some of the things that you hope to see okay. in terms of the work you're doing? Um, yikes, that's a tough one. <laughs> Uh, I, just a quick aside, we have a, a VCU intern in my office and she actually did, she came to me on Thursday and was like, you have a second? Of course I have a second. And she was like, do you think that the work that we do sometimes is in vain? And that was a really tough question because like, I had to tell her, you know, like, sometimes you will see the fruit of the work that you do. And that's the, that's the part of the job that people hold on to. Like when you see one child that would typically respond in this way or respond in another way, that's like, yes, little victory. Um, that doesn't mean that they're going to go to college and be the president of the United States, but that's the start of something, one positive small change. And so we got to look at it from that very small view, but then we can also start to expand that view about how Edu even the simple thing of psychoeducation or educating somebody um, on what they're going through can impact their family. And so five years from now, do I think much will change? Not really. <laughs> um, do I think seeds can be planted? Definitely. Um, my hope is that out of school suspensions will decrease. My hope is that out of home placements will decrease. Um, thinking about like behaviors and behaviors in the home that will lead to out of home placement. My hope is that um, A scores would start to decline. And I think my larger hope, which I do feel like we as a community have a stronger grasp than what we realize, is that we'll start to grow resilience factors in this community. Um, organized sports, um, organized mentoring programs, um, finding ways to, to sustain stuff like that, to build connection, to build character. There's this thing called the seven C's of resilience, connection, character, contribution, control, coping, and a couple more that I'm not stating, um, but like to build those seven C's through tangible ways um, and nonprofits have a strong role, the schools have a strong role, um, the police have a strong role, um, the churches have an infinitely strong role in all of these things. And so I feel like that's something tangible that we could start to grow. And I think just by simply growing those seven C's will start to reduce a lot of the other factors. Um, so my hopes are less out of school, less out of home, less detention. Um, less crime and incarceration, the reunification of families um, in so many ways, healthier families, and like children don't have to carry adult burdens and adult issues. Children could be children, you know, that's my hope. And I do think that some of those can be met in a five-year window, but I think a lot of that, I mean, it took and this is me um, just looking at a bigger scale, where you look at the history of America, how many years have gone into creating this systemic oppression and poverty 
like how many years does it take to create a poverty like this or how many years does it take to create a broken system or broken home um it's gonna take some time to heal it and five years is not that time frame <laughs> yeah well and one exciting thing about your part-time work and training is that it would be even harder if it was just a select few who had their masters and who were specific their jobs were counseling but what you're doing is going into environments where uh, individuals are connecting right. and you are sh saying to them, hey, right. here are the things you need to know, here's some of the things you can do and getting their minds in the place where they understand this is the direction we need to head. Correct. And so um, just a couple resources. The Trauma-Informed Community Network is one here in Richmond. Um, it's a community of not just counselors and social workers, teachers, police officers, anybody who interact with the community at large can join and they have monthly meetings and subcommittees um, that um, address larger things. Um, I have to give the shout outs to SCAN, Stop Child Abuse Now, Child Savers, uh, My Agency, Child Discovery. There's a number of agencies and entities. Allison Sampson, I know you've seen some of her where Allison Sampson Jackson. Um, there's a lot of entities and agencies that are really being intentional about this right now. And they have training committees through TICKN, um, Trauma-Informed Community Network, that's looking for high-impact training. So I specifically have been working on the RPS side just because I'm already in RPS with my day job and I'm exposed to the kids and I'm here and there's a huge grant with the Robbins Foundation that's happening. So I'm specifically in on that side, but there's so many other workers. VCU has jumped in on this. Um, there's so many other parties that are really trying to make this thing a reality about we need education and we need resilience factors. And so um, I know that I'm just like an itty bitty little, little cog in the machine, but at the same time, there's, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that people are taking it seriously. Um, so yeah, I think that's really cool too. Uh, so you've lived in the community for 10 years mm -hmm. and you probably noticed, like many people have noticed, that this year there seems to have been an uptick in, in shootings, an mm -hmm. uptick in violence, and a lot of that ends up uh, being connected with teenagers. And so I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts on why, why are teenagers in our community finding themselves in those situations? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, I think that Churchill is becoming such a complex community um, and I don't know statistics or numbers so I'm going to throw some ideas out there and then I'm going to go back to kind of mental health stuff because that's what I do know. Um, so I wonder personally what it must be like or feel like to live in a community that's changing this rapidly. Um, I ask that question because I wonder about opportunity and access to access to resources, whether that's opportunity and access to resources through employment or education or opportunity and access to resources through opening up my car door. <laughs> and so I think that's so tough because, you know, on, on this whole gentrification thing, I am on the side of somebody that did not grow up here. Now, I didn't have a, I had a, a college, I had an undergraduate degree when I moved here. So I'm already somebody who has privilege in that way. Um, and so I can't tell you what it uniquely feels like. I could probably tell you a little bit about how it feels in DC because <laughs> that's what I do know. It's, I still couldn't afford to live there, but um, it's tough. And so I think there's a lot of feelings behind it that we're not able to yet uh, quantify. We could qualify it, but we can't quantify it yet. So I, I wonder how that feels. Um, I have these conversations often with teenagers about what, um, like, okay, you want to do this, that, and the other. Well, what's it worth to you? Is it worth it to, to go and fight that person? Or is it worth it to go and use that drug? Or what is it worth? And 
I think you really have to consider what a hopeless person is willing to do and what worth is relative to hope. So that if you don't have much hope, then really anything's worth it because I don't have hope for what tomorrow is going to bring. I don't have hope in my own potential. I don't have hope in the possibility for employment resources or a type of lifestyle that I'm seeing other people live or that I might even want. And so I think that that's a really tough part because there are people in the communities here that are clear success stories. Um, there are people who in, in the communities are success stories that aren't so clear that success doesn't look traditionally as how we would view it. Um, but there's a lot of people that get um, just stuck and it's really sad and scary and we're not doing the best we can to really start to address it um, as, a, as a country, as a state, as a community even here. I'm, I'm very mindful and cautious about like if I would speak about gang life and gang involvement because Richmond is very odd in the fact that like they don't play the major gang roles here. Like we do have major gangs that have a nationwide kind of um, like um, nationwide impact but we have like a lot of local things too like community gangs and community groups <laughs> that they wouldn't quite call a gang um and that is a lot of concentrated poverty that is a lot of uh, generational poverty like my family lives in this community for so long and it is a kind of a protective factor it's a school thing and it's a belonging everybody wants to belong to something and if i can't sustain my belonging in this organization here long enough um, then this organization has always had an arm open to me and they'll protect me and they care about me and so there's something really appealing about gangs I'm in a sorority and I'm not gonna call that a gang but <laughs> you know they've embraced me um, and they support me and we do things together in the community and in our personal lives and things like that and so there's a lot of that's ha that's that um, that is going on. Um, there's a lot of frustration tolerance and inability to resolve conflict. Um, that's the kind of the mental health side of like, you disrespected me, so I need to disrespect you, or our mamas don't like each other, or we're told to not like each other because of where we live. Um, and I think the frustration tolerance is a really big one as well, where like, I don't know how to cope with um, losing or not getting my way or having my feelings hurt. And so I'm just going to lash. I'm going to be impulsive. And um, then the other part is the access to guns, um, legally and illegally. <laughs> um, and that's just a really big thing that, as a country, we're not willing to take a sober look at. We're willing to say we don't like gun violence, but we're not willing to say a lot of the implications that involve that are involved in gun violence as well. And so when you have a low frustration tolerance and you don't have or whether you have or you don't have, or even whether your brain is willing to let you have the ability to um, resolve conflict, you have access to a gun and somebody has done something that has deeply hurt you, the most instant gratification is right there at the trigger. Um, so it makes sense, um, but we have a lot of work to do in order to address it, and it's not just mental health, it's community, wealth, uh, systems, uh, laws, so again, the, the macro and the micro. <laughs> it's both, it's, it's micro yeah. and it's macro. But one thing you, what was it, uh, you said there's seven C's or mm -hmm. something. So in hearing you talk, it makes me think about how I wonder as more people are understanding the impact of trauma, as more people are understanding the value and importance of those seven C's, um, how, and the more that people are engaging more deeply and more long-term 
how that might begin to play a role in the lives of youth who their trajectory could have led in this way, but Correct. having those C's. So two, two quick thoughts on that. One is um, Brene Brown and her work on shame and all of the other stuff. Um, she's, it's, so, it's so interesting. So I did a training at Fairfield Elementary a couple of weeks ago and we talked about how shaming and trauma can go hand in hand and triggering the individual to have these crisis responses or traumatic responses. And how um, even in taking a disciplinary approach to things, um, trying not to use a shame model um, because you're not gonna get appropriate outcomes that you want by shaming somebody. <laughs> and then you have all these other, like, you just start to tear down character, which is one of those C's, and you start to break down connection, which is one of those C's, and all these other things that go with that. Um, and so I do think um, implementing some of these new skills along the way, changing our approach um, in that matter, building the C's in the community, taking the shame off of poverty, and taking the shame off of bad choices, um, can really start to have that impact down the road. And when you think about it, when you have connection by itself, if you have somebody that's worth it to you and you don't want to disappoint them, that's the difference between shame and guilt. Like shame is I'm bad and guilt is I've done something bad to actually, you know, I, I, I've hurt you to a degree because I've done something bad and you are connected to me and think really highly of me. And so there's a big difference in those two. And um, connection alone uh, really brings that little bit of character, but mainly connection to somebody else can bring that difference and start to really change behaviors. But the other interesting conversation that I had was this week in uh, the, the detention and one of the groups we did the love languages by Gary Chapman and I know it's so cheesy and I had to let them know guys this is so cheesy <laughs> like one of those things but they really engaged in it and we had some funny comments of course but when we got to words of affirmation one of the young men said um, you know words of affirmation isn't high for me because I typically don't make good choices so why would people affirm me and I asked the question I was like okay so what if I affirmed you in the little choices that you did well? Because I've seen tremendous growth since you've been in here, honestly. Um, and so do you think that my affirmation of those little things can lead to further affirmation of larger things down the road? Or what do you think that it would encourage you to think twice about your choices? And he was like, yeah, because if you're affirming me, that means that I wouldn't want to let you down. Again, connection. But like just the little things and like as communities, we, we always point out what is wrong, taking a shame based approach like um, there's poverty, there's dirt, there's crime, there's broken homes. Well, there's also resilience, there's flowers and trees, and there's people who decorate their homes for the holidays, there's community, there's a kinship of looking out for other people's families. And so when we take a shame-based approach, we do no good, but when we start to look at the strengths that are even in these communities, and the, the self-preservation strength, because a lot of times that's what these shooters boil down to, is self-preservation as well, um, then we can really start to shift that conversation. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it'll be so interesting um, 10 years from now if a lot of a lot of people, a lot of teenagers don't even believe that these neighborhoods are going to be here in 10 years. They're going to say, oh, they're going to shut it down or they're going to put us all in the condos over at the old Armstrong building. So there's a lot of stuff that people don't know what's happening. And that's got to be scary not knowing where your future is, especially if this is all you've known your, your whole life. Um, but to see what that could look like in 10 years if we are engaging and if we are um, taking a strength based approach. Richmond could really be a model. Well, for those who like to pray, um, what are some things that people can pray for around this topic and the work that you're doing um, and your colleagues? How can people pray? I think in our conversation, we've talked about so many, um, so many 
like we haven't necessarily taken a strengths-based approach even in this conversation about all the awesome things that's happening in Churchill um and I think one of the things that we can do is just kind of have that grateful mentality and just like a, a thanksgiving um uh in in the resources that are becoming available and and the children who are seeking connection and the families that are seeking connection and the parents who are choosing to do things differently or the parents who are choosing to practice consistency with their kids just being thankful for that um i think another prayer is us kind of really not making ourselves and our values and the gods and idols um and being humble um I think a lot of this political talk kind of stems around that and this identity politics and, you know, what's right and what's wrong. And sometimes we forget about truth. Um, and we know there are some definite and universal truths in this world. I know that the two of us believe in some, some truths as well, that there is a God and there is a Jesus that cares and it's coming. <laughs> and so like that we can really like just humble ourselves in that aspect. I don't think that God is asking for us to change neighborhoods. He's not even really asking us to save people. That's not our jobs. Um, but I do think that God is just wanting us to connect with him and take that guidance from him. Um, and, and so often I feel like if you're not in the field of work that you're supposed to be doing or if you're not using your fruits and your talents to the best of your ability, you get that burnout, you get that drain. And when you are using it in that way, the way that God has like uniquely created you, um, you just thrive. And it's just it feels it feels juicy. <laughs> I guess I don't know what the word is. <laughs> it feels it feels like. You know, this is what I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I think more than anything, if people really just did, you know, Don's gonna say, do the Bible. But if people really just did what they felt like God was leading them to do in the most humble way possible, not what they want God to tell them to do, or not what they, I want God to bless me with this, or I want God to tell me to go do this. No, like what God is just really desiring you to do or has uniquely created you to do. I do think that we can have the strongest impact here. So. Our prayers are, of course, for safety. Our prayers are, of course, for peace. Our prayers are for shalom and, you know, all those nice Christianese words. <laughs> but my prayer has always been that um, I'm where God wants me to be, number one. And number two, that I am a, a walking and living example of what Jesus Christ could be, um, whether through me not judging as he didn't judge or me being generous as he was generous or things like that. Um, Cause I never know what, what any little interaction is gonna make. Um, I ran into an old chat kid once and she was like, I knew you from chat. And I was like, girl, I was probably at my worst cause I was tired, <laughs> you know? Or cause it was, you know, when chat was in the lighthouse and I lived in the lighthouse and I was tired. And the fact that she just remembered my face and I don't even, I couldn't remember her face at all. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, did one of those playoffs, um, but like, that that was just one of those moments where she was able to just open up to me right there on the spot and Armstrong and bring her friends around and I was like this is a God moment you know and that's what I'm looking for in my life and I hope that other people can have those God moments as well especially here in this community but just across their life and whatever communities they're in. Well, anything else on your heart you want to say? Uh, not really. I, I want to give a shout out to Shola <laughs> and Mahogany <laughs> Suites. Um, I think that's a beautiful thing. I feel like she's doing exactly that. Like she's where God wants her to be. Um, and I've been making actually dietary lifestyle changes for some health stuff. And I've been able to call on her and say, hey, like what can I do so I don't starve while I'm trying to <laughs> be a healthier and really steward my body better. 
And so that I do feel like this is a God moment for her and like I just gotta be there to see it because I'm very proud and I know the work that she's put in, um, but she's also just a sister in so many ways here in this community, a woman of color. Um, and and it's, it's work, it's hard work. So I wanna put that affirmation out there, a little shout out if I can. <laughs> but I know there are a lot of other people who are doing that too, but hers is right now and that's where I'm going next. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sitting down with me and taking some. And I just want to affirm, like, I appreciate um, not just the work that you do, but the fact that you're investing your life into others and in a very deep and important way. And that you're seeking to equip others to do the same because one person can do some things, but a, a community of people can, exactly. can transform a lot. So exactly. thank you for what you do. Thank you, sir. It's nice knowing you. It's been a good long time. Good <laughs>